0: and welcome to yet another episode of Family Law and Lattes. My name is Melanie Batier Samuel, and today I'm joined by one of our previous guests, Max Turnell. Max is a family barrister at One King's Bench Walk. His work includes divorce, financial remedies, and disputes between unmarried couples, amongst other things. He is also a co-author of One KBW on trust in matrimonial finance proceedings, and had responsibility for the Talaza chapter in the 10th edition of Jackson's Matrimonial Finance which is great because last time Max came on, he was talking about um, trusts. So we had the first episode in a series looking at trusts and family matters. And this time Max is back for the second installment in this series, which deals with prevention and avoidance of disposition of assets and section 37 of Matrimonial Causes Act. Hello, Max. Welcome back to Family Law and Lattes. Hi, Melody. Thank you very much for
1: having me again.
0: No, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast again. Um, last time we discussed trust and you explained to me why I shouldn't be afraid of Talata claims and that was a very uh, reassuring uh, um, podcast. And I know that we've had several listeners who have told me that it was really helpful for them to listen to it um, before engaging in their own Talata-esque um, cases. So. We talked about what else you could come and talk to us about because uh, you have a font of knowledge that very people would be very helpful for a lot of people, and you proposed to come and talk to us about um, Section 37 of the MCA today.
1: Yes, and I suppose the difficulty here is that this is something to be a bit worried about if you're a respondent. But yeah, so we're looking at the prevention and avoidance of dispositions.
0: Cool. Excellent. And, um, I'm going to put my hands up and say, I have, uh, I've studied this. I've come across, I've seen it. I've gone to conferences. I've never actually had to do anything about it. So I'm going to be asking questions for my own personal knowledge and hopefully, um, others can just use that. If not, they will be able to contact you, no doubt. Uh, and to pick your brains, um, general questions. So what exactly is this? What, why is it useful? What kind of tool is it? How does it work? Give me a little bit of a, a kind of a gentle introduction into this.
1: Sure. Um, so we have a general rule in this jurisdiction that parties have separate property mm-hmm. and they can do whatever they like with it, even within proceedings. It's a general rule. Sure. Um, but as Mr. Justice Mostyn observed in ND and K- KP, we, we don't have a system of general I'm probably going to butcher this, and I appreciate I'm talking to someone who speaks fluent French, but say, c- c- "see conservato- conservatoire?
0: Yeah, that's pretty that good. Sound? Well done, yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: Um, Duolingo working there, um, I like whereby that. assets are automatically frozen pending determination of divorce claim. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that. Paradoxically, though, those freedoms do have limits. And certainly, we've had limits on things since the 20th century. So the court has a number of powers at its disposal in order to prevent attempts to defeat or reduce claims for financial relief. Okay. What's the point in having section 25 if the court's going to, at the end of the long run, not be able to apply it?
0: Sure. Okay.
1: And so we yeah, so we've got a bespoke statutory tool, statutory tool for matrimonial finance cases um, encapsulated in section thirty-seven of the Matrimonial Causes Act.
0: Okay. Well, so basically what we're saying is people can deal with things, but don't worry if anything happens, the court can always turn around and say, nope, we're going to add it back in or we're going to do something to prevent it from being dissipated any further.
1: Yes. So uh, you, um, you've got sort of two separate powers, sort of separate categories. One is freezing things or a preemptive application. And two is, a, um, is an undoing kind of tool. Um, and that's clearly going to be better than trying to mop things up by arguing about addbacks or, or the like at the end, and, and well, particularly where it's impossible to add back if there's something, if there's nothing left yeah, in it's the pot,
0: gone if it's been spent. Exactly. Um, is this the tool? Is this can can this only be used in um, financial remedies as part of divorce or civil partnership dissolutions, or do we have? Ability to use it elsewhere is it very is it very niche or is it something that can permeate throughout the financial resolution and the various kind of claims we can make?
1: It's niche, so it's only looking at financial remedy applications. Yeah. Uh, so for part three under the MFPA 1984, you've got. Uh, sections 23 and 24 which are are largely similar they're a little bit different because the structure of part three is different but but largely do the same sort of job you've got the equivalent provisions under the civil uh, civil partnership 2004 act and that's under part 14 under the inheritance act you've got provisions um, but you don't have any powers under schedule one and so we'll probably look actually in, in a moment at mm-hmm. the alternative powers the court has to section 37.
0: Okay. Um, this is kind of like a really stupid question, actually. And I was reading the notes you sent me about what you wanted to discuss today. Um, so this is not like freestyling it at, at all. Um, but you were talking about alternative powers. Um, are we saying basically, yeah, there's the section 37 and that's there for uh, prevent, uh, preservation or um, avoidance disposition. But actually, if... The, the the ship has sailed or the horse has bolted, there are other steps you can take? Or is this a matter of actually, as well as this, you can look at other laws or statutes that can help us protect?
1: Yes. So uh, as I was saying that section 37 of the Match Causes Act, it's a bespoke statutory tool that's been mm. given to us. And as I said, there are equivalents for part three, civil partnership cases and so on. Um, but there are general powers. So it actually follows quite nicely in the theme of that. Section 37 splits into two areas. There are two um, alternate powers that come to mind. So you've got under the, uh, the Senior Courts Act of 1981, Section 37 of that, doesn't help that it's the same section, <laughs> um, which are which is a sort of a, a power to prevent dispositions where it's just and convenient to do so. So it's a remedy that's not specific to financial remedy claims. So that can be used for Schedule 1. Um, and uh, to be honest, I, I, I sort of agree with, for instance, Mr. Justice Mostyn, and UL and BK, that it doesn't seem, to be much of a, doesn't seem to be much of a difference for that. And for the reasons why, which we'll go into a little bit later, I don't see why with a matrimonial finance case, you wouldn't just use Section 37 of the Matrimonial Causes Act. There. Mm-hmm. So there's that. It's a alternative power. It's sometimes called a Mareeva injunction. Um, the court, the high court theoretically has an inherent um, power under its jurisdiction in family proceedings to make freezing orders in support of financial remedy applications as well. Although there's been a spate of recent decisions which say essentially it doesn't really add anything up and above what it already has on a statutory basis. So I'm not sure that's really worth going into Mm -hmm. too much detail about. So those are alternative powers for um, preemptive applications. And then very much more in vogue, we have section 423 of the Insolvency Act 1986. And despite it being numbered and 422 things being more important, it actually does look like it's quite an important (laughs) provision. And it's a a general anti-avoidance remedy. It's not restricted to insolvencies. um, And that can be an alternative application. Um, There are a few things about it that make it a little bit of a different machine to our equivalent power. And... Again, because we've got our own power, in or certainly in my view, most most cases, an application under this provision is not going to add anything um, over, over and above Section 37.
0: So when would you use this kind of... Uh, or am I asking the question not to ask? No, no, no. No, I'm, I'm smiling at you. Yeah, no,
1: <laughs> yeah. That's, a good, that's a good question. That's a very good question. <laughs> um, so sort of the, the core... Cool ho- the hallmarks of, of an application under the Insolvency Act, it means that you have to have a transaction at an undervalue. So it's a slightly different test mm-hmm. to under Section 37. We have to have an applicant must be a victim of the transaction. Transaction has to be entered into with a requisite purpose, and then the court has the ability to make whatever it orders it sees fit. It's been in vogue, uh, I think, really since AAZ and BBZ, which we now know. Um, as the Akramadova Ak- or Ak- and Madovan- akramadova case. Yeah. And so um, Mr. Justice had in cave way back in, I think it was 2014, 2015.
0: So a it guy feels guy like a lifetime mind.
1: probably for Mrs. Akramadova at least. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the judge opted to make an order on both base- bases. Um, so not just Section 37, but under Insolvency Act, in order to aid enforcement, because there was a wild goose chase after mm-hmm. that. To, to try and find the money. So is that uh, in some cases it may be easier to prove a transaction at an undervalue um, than as well go on to look at the absence of, of valuable consideration, which is part of the test um, under section 37.
0: So I guess that'll be for like
1: properties
0: or uh shares and things like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. And And there's no doubt that Section 423 can be used to set aside transactions made from third party to third party, Okay, um, which is one of the, the, I think, only problems in otherwise quite a a well-drafted Section 37 provision. Because it's probably quite, quite right to say that apart from one slight amendment to Section 37, which simply took into account the court's newfound powers to make pension sharing orders. The wording of um, Section 37 has been unchanged since 1970, 1973, so oh, wow. it seems to have done quite well.
0: <laughs> it's lasted a while,
1: yeah. And it's one of those rare things where you are still referring to cases in the 1980s, which in are, family
0: law is not that common.
1: Well, exactly, because they're always quite painfully antiquated. As yeah. you know, the wife will get a third, and you go, yes, "Oh, yes, okay. not relevant anymore."
0: So um, when would we say to people, and I may be jumping the gun because you might talk about this later on, but when, we, when would we say, you know, in this scenario, you should probably look at both Insolvency Act and MCA, or is it a matter of you really need to be speaking to counsel because it's one of those kind of cases? And also the second question I'm going to ask is basically... Do you do you do this both in the family both both in the family court, so would you have to lodge one application in the family court and then, as part of the ongoing divorce proceedings, and the other one in a civil court uh, separately?
1: Okay, so I think there are three parts there. One is I think you look at section thirty seven first to see if it does the job. If it does mm-hmm. the job perfectly well, then I think you're fine and don't okay. waste any more money. Two, if you're a little bit unsure, call me a little bit biased, but yes, come speak to to counsel, um, and and then three. Trying to remember what the third point was. Uh, Procedurally,
0: was, how do you, which court does it? Does the application oh, yes. go? How does it work in
1: your proceedings? Exactly. So I think an insolvency act application has to be made in the High Court, or to a court that the respondent could be bankrupt in. Okay. Something on those. Something on lot. The, the, something on those lines. I can mm-hmm. double check for you. But um, but again, I think it's a yeah, it's a slightly more knobbly procedure sure, that family okay. lawyers won't be used to so it might be worth exactly look at section 37 first and then if you get into the high stakes litigation of akhmadova that doesn't really need to be at that level but um, yeah, then sure. i think the insolvency act probably comes into its for a bit more
0: wow okay um is it just those are those the only ones we have to worry about or are you going to throw another one in and say oh yes there's also this one that you'd be thinking about should you want to be
1: there, I mean, I know there is another power to grant injunctions in aid of foreign proceedings, uh, but but I think that's probably enough for us to be getting on with.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's more than and, enough.
1: Yeah, I was I was <laughs> trying to give just an overview of those. Sorry, no, of no, those no, 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 no. I was I was just giving say, you the
0: opportunity to say, no, Melanie, it's <laughs> not just Section four two three of the Insolvency Act, actually. All right, so um, we've talked about prevention and avoidance, um what do we need to know about this how does it how you know so what do we do now we have it we want to make the application how do we go about what do we need to be thinking about before we do the procedure what do
1: we need to be thinking about okay so as i've said we we split section 37 into two kinds of remedy we've mm-hmm. got prevention and avoidance right. so prevention is a preemptive injunction prevents any future disposal dealing or transfer of property sure. it's a freezing injunction yeah that's section 37 to a it's our equivalent of the move injunction. There are, like with avoidance, there are three aspects to that. We've got the action, intention and discretion. Okay. So the action is, is the respondent about to make any disposition or transfer out of the jurisdiction or otherwise deal with any property? Um, and two, the intention part, does the respondent have the intention of defeating the claim for financial relief. Okay. And then once we've gone on to that, we can talk about discretion, which is the court may make any such order as it thinks fit for straining the respondent and or protecting the claim. That's for prevention. Mm -hmm. And then with avoidance, very lots of commonalities here. You're just sort of changing the part, the tenses really. Okay. You're looking at the setting aside of a reviewable disposition made before or after financial relief. So it's a set-aside also. It can be mm-hmm. as part of current proceedings or it can be as uh, as part of enforcement proceedings. Okay. And, and there the action is, so again, the three parts, action, intention, discretion. Has the respondent made a reviewable disposition? Intention, um, does the respondent have the intention of defeating the claim or, or did the respondent have the intention of defeating the claim for financial relief? And then three, discretion, the court will have the power to set aside the disposition. That's discretion to do so, as well sure. as consequential consequential powers. Uh, so what do we need to be thinking about? Well, it it sort of follows quite closely, actually, from what what's required from those. We're really looking at, at how, certainly, the statute, and if not statute, then, then how cases have defined those terms. Um, and the general theme is it's all pretty wide, um, as it should be because of the things we're talking about and trying to undo um, connivances and and conspiracies and all the rest of of it. So financial relief, it really goes from uh, maintenance pending suits to uh, alteration of maintenance agreements. So all the things that you could possibly really have under the sun um i think there's one very narrow exception but yeah maintenance pending suit lump sums property adjustment orders settlement of property pension sharing orders failure to maintain you know which we we now all know about because um, mm-hmm. of villiers and in no way we did we have any clue what it was before um, <laughs> variation <laughs> no case yeah exactly <laughs> variation <laughs> cases um, so that's that's what we mean by financial relief uh, then we move on to requisite intention on, on what that means. Um, so in each situation, the court has got to be satisfied that the respondent acted or is acting with the requisite intention, um, which is to have the intention of defeating the claim for financial relief. Um,
0: and and is that something that the that the applicant has to prove, or is it that the respondent has to prove this? How, how does who, who has the onus of, of doing that work?
1: It, uh, lawyers answer, it depends.
0: Oh, <laughs> I, I like those kind of answers. <laughs> Whichever suits best.
1: Um, so, um, in, defeating the claim is given the widest possible definition I think you, can, you could have. It means preventing or reducing the claim or frustrating or impeding the enforcement of any order which might be or, or, or has been made. That's, that's sort of subsection one of the act. Uh, and so that can include payment of debts to family or uh, friends, um, t- particularly when you only really look at them where, you know, they're informal or hist- historic, high spending that's unusual, consuming mm-hmm. assets, turning a liquid asset into an illiquid asset, investing in something risky, such as a head fund, yeah. taking things offshore, you know, anything of that nature, which I think family lawyers have a very good intrinsic gut for working yeah. out some things a bit beyond the hinky. pale.
0: Yeah, something's a bit hinky. Uh,
1: and coming to actually answering your question, what is so attractive about Section 37, unlike, unlike a Mariva injunction, for instance, um, and unlike Insolvency Act, um, is there is a rebuttable presumption of intention um, where the court is satisfied that the disposition has or would have the consequence of defeating the claim and either... Um, the disposition took place in the last three years um, before the date of the application or the disposition is about to take place. So in that situation, you've got a rebuttable presumption and you say over to you, respondent, um, I've got my application in within within three years mm-hmm. and you've given your grandma a one million pound property. It's up to you to now explain it. Um, okay. So it's only in the absence of that, that you need to look at actual intention. And you can see, actually, it's quite rare actually to see the, the um, presumption working because those are the probably the quite non-controversial cases that sort of sure. get sorted quite quickly. Um, but you saw it in we've just already talked about Akhmadov and Akhmadova. So it, within the original proceedings, um, the wife had sought an order under Section Thirty Seven as well as under the Insolvency Act to set aside a deed of trust. Dated, uh, it was in March 2015. uh, Under which the husband purported to assign virtually his entire wealth, in essence, to his alter ego. But it was a Bermuda cipher trust. Mm -hmm. This position was made four days before he signed his witness statement in the ongoing financial remedy proceedings, (laughs) which presumably said, "I don't." Yeah, exactly. I don't owe anything. Um, No, no questions here. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Um, so obviously once that was worked out, yes. um, they made this application and the husband produced no evidence to rebut the presumption and the disposition was accordingly set aside. And that was, as you aware, millions and millions of pounds, the court mm-hmm. had no hesitation in, in using the presumption. Um. But yeah, as I, as I said, outside that the three year the, also let's say the three year period if we're looking back, um, actual intention must be shown. Uh, okay. So it's the respondent's intention in a, in a subjective sense. The court can obviously reply, rely upon inferences to ascertain true intentions and can infer attention when whatever you've done has had very natural consequences. Um, but but it's also important to, to be aware that the intention to defeat doesn't have to be the sole or, or dominant intention. as long as it plays a, a substantial part, um, then that's enough. And, and sort of you go sort of go back to sort of basic principles. well of course timing is going to be highly relevant if the disposition predates the divorce and or marital difficulties by sure. some years, heavily weighted against such an, an, indi- an intention. Um, I had a case actually about where the wife ten years ago they were experiencing marital difficulties um, around that. Or oh, that's what she said, and that's when transactions happened, um, and then the parties sort of reconciled or stayed mm-hmm. together, um, and then it was then it came to a financial remedy application. Then she was alleging that um, it was all done as a a, a landmine or some sort of divorce-proofing mechanism sure. way back then. And so that would have been really interesting, but it settled about three weeks before trial. Oh, um,
0: darn, these inconsiderate clients.
1: I know, I know, because that would have been quite interesting. Um, so yes, and so purpose is going to be highly relevant. And so if it can be shown that the disposition was made for a legitimate, innocent, benevolent purpose, then um, the court will decline, because you need to have um, intention as part of Approved um, uh, as part of that or satisfied as part so of the. So you have to show.
0: So you have to show intention. Um, an intention can be, I guess, actions as well, like things having been done. So, well, obviously it is. It's kind of you know properties being transferred, assets being transferred, sold on, etc. Is that not enough? Just having just having that done, or do you have to show there was? We think there was an intention to.
1: You, I mean, if it's outside of those three years and you don't have the presumption, yeah. yes, you you need a, you need sort of. Try and persuade the court that it was done with with the with the with the okay. intention in mind. Um, yes, so quite a lot of what you are doing there is saying, "Well, look, there was marital difficulties at the time. Uh, it might not have been the only reason. It might have also been because, let's say, the money the money was given to a donkey sanctuary. It's also the husband liked donkeys, sure. Yeah. Um, but also, you can say, well." what the effect of this is, is to the, let's say, the husband's benefit, sure. um, or it's to substantially reduce the assets. And you can say, well, bearing that in mind, the consequences of what's happened, you can then say, well, that shines quite a heavy light upon what the respondent, the husband, has done. What? So, I mean, what seems to quite exemplify this is the case of Mubarak. a so long-running litigation It's probably the the earlier version of Acomadova. Um The parties had settled a trust in Jersey and they transferred their shares in a family company um, into the trust in 1997. In 2005, uh, the wife was attempting to enforce the order, so she applied to set aside those transfers. Um, unfortunately for the wife, the husband had plainly quite legitimate, or it was found to be so legitimate and a, a proper intentions about orderly succession, that was the reason for the trust, mm-hmm. and critically, the avoidance of tax. Right. Um, so th- that was the obvious reason for doing it way back then, there didn't seem to be any suggestion that it was for, or rather it wasn't the, um, a substantial part of the intentions was not Mr. Mubarak
0: yeah.
1: um, trying to uh,
0: prevent his wife Mrs. from having a share, yeah. Exactly. Okay, and so what can the court do?
1: Well, so we've got we've got to intention so mm-hmm. far. We need to then look at um, wh- whether or not the has said to be done, the act, is a disposition, and whether or not it's for, um, for the purposes of. It's not going to be relevant for freezing, but for setting aside, we need to look at the, the meaning of reviewable disposition.
0: Oh, wait, hold on. So there's multiple hurdles to jump through. The first is the intention. Yes, the so second we, is going to be what actually took place.
1: Yes. So we've looked at the intention, um, which we say we split it up into the, the two bits, sure. which is presumption, which is going to cover most of mm-hmm. our cases, hopefully. And then we, we've looked a little bit at actual, at the actual okay. intention yeah. you had to prove. And and now we say, okay, we've looked at that, and now we look at the action itself and whether or not that to use the word phrase bites for the purpose of section thirty-seven. Uh, so disposition again, following our theme, very widely defined by section thirty-seven, subsection six, any conveyance, assurance, gift of property, whether made by instrument or otherwise, in which Either or both parties have got a have got an, a beneficial interest. Um, doesn't therefore include, um, let's say, a, a company mm-hmm. dis- disposing of its own assets. It's got to be one of the parties. Um, doesn't include provisions contained in a will or a codicil, but pretty much covers everything, everything else.
0: So wait, so if you have like a, um, a husband or a wife or a person who owns or has a business and they are let's say a family business, multiple shareholders or family members, and then one, you know, the husband or the wife sells their shares on to a third party, is that, that's, that's fine. But if the that's company fine. then decides that, oh, well, no, actually we are going to sell our, I don't know, diggers or home or whatever it is that they've got in the business, that then isn't considered a disposition.
1: As a general no, uh, okay, because you get into sort of that piercing the corporate veil sort of oh, territory. Oh gosh, that
0: sounds so familiar. Yes, I remember <laughs> doing an. I'm Sure, I, I did an essay about this from my law exams. But so if, but if the husband was the sole shareholder or something, or the sole director, or the wife was the sole person, could you then say, well, clearly?
1: Well, again, as a general rule, no, because still, even though you've got, let's say, a sole director, sole shareholder company, the company still has a separate legal personality and therefore all the sort of attractions of that still maintain. Mm -hmm. probably makes it much easier to say, you know, so you've got Lord Sumption in in Preston Petrodale saying, well, if the, the, the company owned a family home, that, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, it looks very different. It's not really operating perhaps as a, as a company should um, but but beyond having a bit more information to say well the, the company was acting as the husband's nominee or agent or something like that then, then, then no it's not going to be enough okay. and you're far better going after the company itself um, which you wouldn't be able to do under section 37 of the Matrimonial Causes Act because that's about between husband-wife or wife-and-wife husband-husband um, so we that's a meaning of disposition so most that really shouldn't have a, a problem with as, as long as we're making sure we we work out who is the person who's actually getting rid of something or, or dealing with something mm-hmm. um the, the difficulty can sometimes talk uh, come to it's about whether or not the disposition is reviewable it's not relevant for um for freezing injunctions because that's mm-hmm. Preemptive, we're looking at reviewing is by its nature looking into the past.
0: Yeah. Um, So, this is if it's been passed on to someone else or if you've passed it on, like sold it or whatever.
1: Yes. And it's quite important to have stipulations on this because you've got to allow people to continue making normal transactions unimpeded. And I think it's a homage to the fact that property is, it still belongs to you and you're entitled to do whatever you like with it. So, it's got to be reviewable. And it will not be reviewable if the deal or the the disposition was made for valuable consideration to a person acting in good faith and without notice of any intention on the part of the respondent to to defeat the Mm -hmm. applicant's claim. Now, it's a bit of a mouthful, um, but if we just sort of break it down a bit. Um, So valuable consideration. Um, So there's no requirement that... The consideration needs to be for market or actual value. value. But the rule of thumb is, well, the greater the undervalue of what the respondent is doing, the, the greater the likelihood the transaction was perhaps to defeat the claim. Um, the sale at an undervalue, although possibly, as we've said, satisfying mm-hmm. that valuable consideration test, it may communicate an improper motive on the respondent's part. Sure. to the trans, to the transferee, so that the, the third party is receiving it. Um, so the latter will not take in good faith. Good faith um, mm. means what it means. Um, it's pretty fact-specific. Um, and I, I think in that sort of situation, I think I call it sort of the too-good-to-be-good-to-be-true test.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, uh, though a sale may be for full value... Um, the transaction could still be satisfied if the transferee had actual or, or constructive notice. So if the third party is aware, actually or, or constructively, of what lets the respondent has done, um, then then that, that would be fine. And constructively, it's knowing something which ought to have put them on on further inquiry or on notice um, that, that something awry so- is going on
0: husband and a wife, one or the other, sells Let's Let's, let's to, use wife, this let's is, use to, wife. to give, so, it,
1: to give a bit of balance. So,
0: wife sells a property to uh, somebody on the market, and then they then transfer it on to someone else because they've sold it onwards. That's probably, you can't do anything about that because that's in good faith. But if your if wife sells to a friend, and then a friend passes it on to a friend of theirs, at an undervalue or otherwise, all of which knowing that this is part of the divorce proceedings... Does that count? Is that is that something that can be reviewed? Can the court roll that back? Yes. So, uh,
1: let's say wife goes to the pub on a Friday night and says, "I offer you the family home for uh, fifty thousand pounds when it's worth mm-hmm. a million. Okay. Uh, so, is it made for valuable consideration? Well, arguably, yes. Fifty thousand pounds is sure. is is consideration and it's valuable. Um, was you've got to work out whether or not the person who bought it was acting in good faith mm-hmm. um, and without notice of any intention on the part of the wife uh, to defeat the claim. Um, that's the that's the issue that you're trying to get around. That it wouldn't be a problem if what was being offered was a was a million ne- necessarily, unless it you know you can say well the wife said to him the reason I'm doing this is because I'm trying to make sure the husband doesn't have doesn't have the property. Sure, That's the sort of situation we're trying to avoid. Um, now, that's actually quite, can be quite difficult because how on earth does an applicant know what happened in the pub? And so, although the legal burden is going to be on the applicant to, i.e. to provide that the third party in the pub had no notice of the, of the wife's intentions, the, evidential burden sort of shifts onto the wife and so the wife has to sort of say what happened Mm. at the pub um that's because of the obvious difficulties with having to prove a negative or or, or lack of knowledge sure this all make sense
0: yeah, no, no, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. I'm just thinking, you know, if you've got a situation where you've got the the wife that sells the family home for a million pounds and it's on the market, it would be sold for a million pounds. I suspect the court would just turn around and say, what are you doing? The million pounds is in the bank, we're just going to have to deal with the cash. The property is gone and up. It was, it was done in good faith. Nothing can do about it. I'm assuming that's how the court would look at it. Or would the court turn around and say, yeah, it was for market value to a third party that wasn't involved, but we're still going to roll it back because, you know, it's an ancestral home and the husband is entitled to keep it or I don't
1: know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the question is, well, what's the harm if it's at full value? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, 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 exactly. I mean, it's quite curious wording, isn't it? Valuable consideration rather than yeah. at a full value. Yeah. Um, but I suppose that you're, then you answered it yourself by saying, well, it depends on what has been traded for what, because of, of course, if, if let's say the, the case was all about the husband retaining the ancestral home, then, although it would be for the same amount of money, his claim, um, it would be in a different form. And there are also issues about, let's say, enforcement, if you're, again, sort of hmm. taking something from one form to another. Um, and of course, ultimately, let's say it was for a million pounds, um, but the, the, part, the, uh, the party wasn't acting in good faith because it was to, in, in some way, um, defeat the the husband's claims, um, the court still has the discretion, doesn't have to set it aside. It might go, right, well, you've still got the amount of money that even though it was to defeat the claim, um, I'm not going to exercise that discretion.
0: Sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm assuming also something, I, I, and this is again another example because that's how my mind works is on examples. But if you had a, a, a company and share controlling shares were sold, um could one person try and say, well, it was sold for the correct amount and legally it's all above board, but actually it defeats the wife's claim or the husband's claim that they wanted to have those shares to be able to have controlling blah, blah, blah. Would would That that could also be a situation where it's like, well, we need to review this as well, despite the fact that it was done all above board and for the right amount, et cetera.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, and you can do that because the meaning of disposition is so wide. It's any conveyance assurance. As, as long as it's so you've got dispositions, not a problem. It's just looking at that intention, and so as long as you've got those two two things there, you're fine. But so what then happens that-
0: to the poor third party that, in good faith, bought what they thought was a great amount of shares or property or whatever? They get their well, money back, but well, exactly. That's it. They're back to the position they were in before. Oh, that's lovely. And they'd have to be joined to the proceedings, would they?
1: But I mean, but you're you're calling them a a poor part, a poor innocent party, but. Well, well, no, they're not. No, because okay. it, if they're a poor, innocent party, then it wouldn't be necessarily a reviewable disposition. Okay. Because they, they wouldn't have been acting in good faith and without yeah. notice yes. of the, let's say, the wife and the pub's
0: intentions. Oh, no, I know, see, I, see, I see where you're going there with Max. I see that. Yeah, I see that. No, that, I understand what you're saying. Yes. Uh, they, but would they be joined to the proceedings? Would they have to be joined to the proceedings to defend their claim? Would they become interveners?
1: Yes. Yes. Oh, they 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 need to. I mean, particularly when their their in, their pro- proprietary that proprietary interests will be affected. Yes, they need to be joined for an avoidance of disposition. <laughs> okay.
0: Right. Thank um, you.
1: But no, no. But actually, what we sort of probably just touching upon is um, when we've got one person in the pub, but the problem really becomes well, what happens if that person then passes it on to someone else? Right. And and that I think is the. Probably the the area that's probably waiting for a a call of appeal or a supreme court judgment. So where we have let's continue our wife in the pub situation. So the wife transfers to a um, a friend, and then they transfer it to another. Well, the reviewable dispositions got to be made by the wife to the proceedings or the other party to the proceedings. In our situation, it's the wife. Um. We can probably, we can get around dispositions made by the wife's servants, agents, nominees or, or trustees, because mm-hmm. you can consider those or, or you, the court may consider those to have been made by the wife personally, um, sure. where they are indistinguishable from him. So the alter ego, it's a bit of a legal fudge, but it serves a very good purpose, sure. Um, but it's more problematic if that doesn't fit your facts. So there's a 2008 court of appeal case called Ansari and the husband there sold the matrimonial home to a cu- couple notwithstanding that the wife lived in the home she didn't seem to um, necessarily know what was going on and 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 the registration of her home rights but nonetheless the husband did his deal and I'm not sure it was in a pub but okay. did the deal it was found it was found as a fact that the husband um, and the couple intended that the sale was to defeat the wife's rights. Um, okay. But the couple, in order to purchase the property, had obtained a mortgage from the bank. And, and so, on that house of cards, the bank had granted a charge on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the wife said, right, well, as part of undoing all this, um, I need to set aside the charge registered in favor of the bank. And the court of appeal says, "Well, no, you you can't do that because the reviewable dispositions got to be made by the other party to the financial receive, relief uh, proceedings. In other words, the husband and or, or, or the wife. Um, it can't be they are the other third party. The fact that the bank at a later stage has granted permission to intervene under Section 37 doesn't mean that all all of a sudden Section 37 applies." Um, which is why perhaps section 423 of the Insolvency Act would have been useful. Um, the only hope seems to be, and this was an expression, of, I think it was over to Dicta, but from it was Lord Justice Longmore, with whom the remainder of the court sort of nodded along, said, well, if all of the parties conspired together to defeat the wife's claim, then... The court has sort of some ancillary powers under Section 37, Subsection Three. Um, it's cut to make consequential directions. They might be broad enough to permit subsequent transactions to be set aside. Um, and I think the the gist there is well, it's public policy decision. It's well okay. to hold otherwise would would create quite an easy way of defeating what is otherwise a very meritorious claim.
0: Okay, so basically, what you're saying is, when you've got compli- complex cases like that, it's not a shoe in, and you probably need to be looking at all possible measures of protection.
1: Yes, I think yeah. On, I think that's probably the, the key takeaway point. Anything like that looks like onward transactions, and <laughs> um, that should be ringing alarm bells. That's much more problematic. Um, I'm, okay. I'm hoping that there aren't people who are. Wanting to subvert <laughs> these kind of applications, listening. If you're like, okay, that's what
0: I'm going to do. That's exactly what I'm going to do. That's fine. The third party and get <laughs> third, fourth party. Let's get everybody involved. Yeah, no. Um, but it does mean that you, from from a protecting the um, the wronged party, if you will, um, you need to be looking at other possible claims as well, just in case. But you might not be able to walk out of this one. Okay, that's yeah. reassuring.
1: But but you know, you can recap that so setting aside, um, the court's going to has the ability to make an order to set aside the disp- disposition. In a normal case, has the intention of defeating the claim for financial relief, and and two, um, has there been a reviewable disposition before or after the financial remedy order? If if that's the case, then the, the court's got the powers and can set aside whatever that disposition was, and it restores the status quo. So most of the time, it's, it's much simpler. Just got to get those, those two things, and then the court has the power. Um, and and the, the effect of restoring the status quo means that, yes, the money goes back to the person in the pub, house goes back to, to the wife, um, and that's to the extent, even to the extent for, let's say, tax purposes, um, suggests that the, the transaction has never taken place. And you can even I think you can even as the applicant you can recover the reasonable costs of trying to undo the effect of the disposition, which is very nice of the court to allow you to do that oh, as well. Get your costs back,
0: you know, when you're fighting to get your assets back. That's always nice. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, do you have time to talk to me a little bit about procedure? What we need to be thinking about.
1: I I was hoping I'd tie myself out rather than have to talk about
0: procedure. No, it's okay, because I I can always kind of cut this podcast into multiple pieces. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sorry, Max, you're going to have to talk us through this. That's
1: all right. Okay. Um, So freezing injunction um, is part 18 procedure, Mm -hmm. and that's by using a special form, which is actually really helpful because it sets out really everything within a tailored format, the form D50G, uh, for set aside, which is an avoidance of of disposition order. Now, that's a type of financial order um, under FPR 2.3. And as such, it comes under the definition of financial remedy. So um, I've seen some places where it suggested that you, you should do that in form A. Well, maybe that's right if you make it the same time as as your initial application, because mm-hmm. you, you have to make it as part of um, proceedings, um, whether enforcement or, or the first time. Uh, but but the more accepted way of doing that is by a D11. And as part of that, of course, you, you need to serve that application on the third party who you say has got the family home or whatever it is that's being disposed of.
0: So, Do you need to seek permission from the court to serve it on the third party as well as on the respondent? Or is it just in your application, you've stated this is what I'm doing and so therefore I'm going to be serving on both of them?
1: The the latter. Uh, And there is an uh, FPR, the FPR says so, essentially is your answer as to why you should be doing that, which is FPR 9.13, subsection 2 says you need to serve it on another person and it's usually necessary to join that third party as well so they intervene for that specific issue Uh, standard things then with the 11 draft order must be supported by evidence unless the court orders otherwise Um, and you're making um, both of those applications to the family court Um, certainly in the first instance, and of course there's the presidential guidance that says um, the family court has full jurisdiction in relation to um, pretty much everything under the sun, apart from a few um, carved-out exceptions. Um, So there's no need to go to the high court. Of course, within the complexity of it, you might well go to the family court and you'll have a a judge who's sitting it um, at a higher level as a high court judge. Um, Now, I think that The important thing about procedure to talk about is about making applications without notice. Now, it's unlikely to be appropriate about applications for the avoidance of dispositions. Mm. Uh, But applications without notice, I'm I'm sure they could probably be a podcast in in, in, in and of themselves. Um, Are you you
0: offering your services, Max? No,
1: I'm busy that day. Oh, what a shame. (laughs) But... Um, But certainly, without notice applications, I would anticipate, apart from non-ministration orders, these are probably the most common applications that are going to be made without notice because of their nature, being freezing injunctions. And for all of the um, hype um, about them, and there's obviously a, a stream of cases that talks about the duties that are required, I think you can fairly put things into two boxes one is you need to demonstrate and, and show to the court that the matter is one of extreme urgency or that the giving of notice of any kind would defeat the purpose of the order sought and so most freezing injunctions that are without notice will be because of that well mm-hmm. a combination of but maybe with a slight like weighting towards well letting the husband know letting the wife know would um completely rule this uh sure Um, ineffectual. But in any other case, at least short informal notice should be given. So even if it's extreme urgency, you should be letting the other side know. Um, And then the other side of things is, well, the evidence must be detailed and precise. And there is a heavy duty on on those presenting application without notice to ensure the court is directed to all of the relevant facts, favourable and unfavourable. And the one of the areas that I've seen it in, where there's been a lot of criticism of, of an applicant, was about deviations from the pro forma draft order. Um, so, in the pro forma draft order, there are certain things that you are meant to have. Not least, um, there is an order for a freezing injunction that you that must well, that's, must contain an undertaking to pay damages, which the. Rest- respondent sustains because of the orders, um, which the court considers the applicant should pay. Because you know, by freezing things, there can be a lot of yeah. damage. Yeah. Um, if things like that aren't are in there, and the court doesn't know because you've given them a three-page order that it looks fairly complex, you're not going to do very well in a return date, if that hasn't oh. been pointed out.
0: Yeah. So explain it carefully in your, state, in your application. One of the best
1: ways I've seen it being done is, and it must be very. I know it is very difficult when you're a barrister and obviously you're instructed on behalf of your client. You've got to get this thing, otherwise, you know your practice is going to dry up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> it's it's vitally important we get this, but then you're then exposing your flank to the um, sure. to the court. But the best way I think I've seen it's done is in the note It is to say, and these are the points against us, and just list them. Mm-hmm. And so the court's got them there, can go through them, and then you can go through and explain in relation to each one why you say, well, actually, despite all of that, we are, our case still meets the test.
0: So there'll be counsel saying, should the solicitor drafting the application put it in their application as well? Is, is there a requirement to set out both the, the, the points against them as well as the points in their favour?
1: I don't think there is a specific requirement that the, the D11 application form, I think as long as the, the court has that information and it's mm-hmm. explained to them before the court makes a decision. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I think it would be far better, better, best practice to, to do so. So most applications with a well, subject to having a little bit of time will have a witness statement attached to them. It seems a appropriate place to factor in all of the, pro and and, and contra points.
0: And then, so you have the first hearing, which is perhaps without notice and an order is granted and you've got a return hearing, but even if it is an on-notice hearing, do you then have a return hearing to deal with as well?
1: Well, it very much depends because it might well be that the the judge says, well, it was on informal notice, but it was still without notice. Mm-hmm. I'm making the application today, but I'm going to come back in a couple of weeks time to consider this properly once the other side have had an you know, opportunity to properly think about things um, or to argue about costs or to talk about whether or not they should be replaced by undertakings. Sure. Um, so
0: it very much depends. That's a lot to think about. What? Um, so you've got the order, it's granted. What happens then? You've got your order, which says, you know, yes, your application is granted, you know, not I guess with a freezing injunction, but perhaps if you're looking at, um, the, um, oh, my, my tongue tongue tied, um, you, you, for example, the, the, the wife's property that she sold on in the pub. Um, and the court is like, okay, yes, you, your, your application's been made. You've got your first hearing. That's great. What happens next? How do you go about dealing with it? Do you have to then go back for another hearing to enforce it, or are you well, just as well? We've got.
1: Hang on, we've we've got we've got the wife in the pub. So let's use yeah. that example. She's transferred the property. You found out. You yeah. want to avoid that. You make an application. Uh, you would typically have a directions hearing, mm-hmm. so uh, hopefully not too far in the future. But at the moment, that's uh, not necessarily anything more than a, than a hopeful. Expectation, you have a directions hearing, and then if you can't sort it out, if it's not painfully obvious, then you, you've got um, your final hearing. Um, you yeah, you have to list a a discrete hearing. Um, you or you you might well try and if you. I think it's going to be it would be quite difficult to have an FDR mm-hmm. without something like that being determined. But let's say if it's after FDR, um, then it may well be that you could try and consolidate it with the final hearing, but. My limited experience of what happening after that, but sometimes the court can really get stuck with too many moving parts, and having open offers that are on the basis of the set aside happening or the you know yeah the set aside happening and not happening probably causes too much of a of a difficulty with time estimates, costs, open open proposals. So I think
0: so realistically, from the concrete standpoint, you know you made this application, you might have had your first hearing. You're basically stuck in limbo waiting for an internal decision to be made, which may very well be consolidated into the main suit um, to be dealt with at a final hearing. So you're kind of stuck. It's just like you've tick boxed to get that asset included effectively because on a piece of paper it shows that it's been dealt with and it's no longer there. You're basically just trying to bring those assets back into the fold, but you physically don't have the house transferred back to the husband for him to carry on living with it or something.
1: Well, no, which is why I think in, in most, I mean, fact-specific, surely, but in most cases, I think you'd want that determined as quickly as possible before you move on to look at the FDR and and, and the final hearing. And also, if you if you've got it, You've achieved that, then you've got a bit of a fair wind, haven't you, going into sure. the FDR? Because you can point and say yeah, this is what
0: So these <laughs> things need the to be dealt with as soon as possible. It's not a matter of waiting for the proceedings to start and see what happens. If you know it's happened before you've issued, deal with it as quick as possible. But what happens if it if it happens just before the first the Form E's filed or something? Because I'm assuming that's when these things would happen. It's kind of like they do it before they have to disclose what their financial position is rather than, you know, yeah. post FDR. Bef- yeah.
1: Okay. Afternova. Oh gosh, the wife's going to get half of it. Oh no. Yeah. Well, in which case I'm going to give, I'm going to give all of my, yeah, my, my assets to, to myself in a different form or something along those lines. Yeah. So as soon as that happens, well, one, it, yeah. The example you've given, it looks fairly obvious what's happened. So you, um, you might be on to a bit of a winner, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think the opposite, the answer is to look as quickly as possible to work out do we do I want to make this application or or not and after that you are a little bit in the court's hands with listing but okay
0: but costs might be looked at later on down the line so even if you're even if you're having to incur the costs of making such an application it is it's not necessarily money um, thrown into the fire, it might be something that you're able to get back later on if the court deems that yes, your application is successful, as in all applications, I'm assuming.
1: Yes, definitely, and that's the sort of there's that level of, of of asset where you're never quite sure whether or not you should deal with it or not. And I think for for me, that's going that's always going to be just just in the run up to the final hearing, you have a a, a party to the litigation paying back. Uh, debts that we disputed that were in existence so you've had an FDR that, and it, let's say it hasn't gone down particularly well because the wife's put on her asset schedule £50,000 owed to family and friends yes. and then she pays that back and yes. you go do I make an application or do mm-hmm. I or do I go well actually those those would have to be paid in, in general That's those are sort of the really tricky cases I think.
0: Okay Max I've Taking up a lot of your time today and you've gone through so much information, which is huge. Thank you very much. Um, top tips um, when dealing with these sorts of situations, I'm assuming is where are you in the proceedings? Deal with it as soon as possible. If you think you're uh, you know, going to try to prevent this from happening or it's happened and you want it to be reinstated, deal with it sooner rather than later. Uh-
1: Definitely for, for lots of different reasons. One, because yeah, you, you want to know what where you're heading. Uh, but the two, obviously we, we talked about as well the, the presumption of intention that if you, if you set your hands and you know things have gone that you might lose that three-year protection. But, but certainly yeah, try and deal with things as quickly as possible. Know where you are. I think you need to um, sit down and look at whether or not you can use Section 37 or, or whether or not you need to look at the other powers. In most cases that not going to be the case but there certainly are, are going to be some
0: and also that you know if whether it's a part three or a civil partnership there are protective measures in place however schedule one not so much um
1: well, schedule one you're looking at the, it's the section 37 of the senior courts act yeah
0: cool thank you wow that's so much information. Um, one final question, which probably hasn't changed since the last time I asked you. Uh, family Law and lattes, we're talking about coffee. So what is your favorite coffee drink? If if there is any, or if you have tea or something else?
1: It, it probably still is a flat white, although I do like, I think they call it, it's, in, it's Portuguese. It's like a pingu or a pingo, what? which is sort of a, um, a little bit like a macchiato, but a bit more, more milky than that is great but i haven't quite mustered up the the confidence to ask for it in a in a cafe that doesn't have it clearly on the wall um i think going up to pret and asking for a pingu or a pingo when i'm not quite sure how i pronounce it it's probably a bit too much
0: oh that would be amazing you should definitely do that and just see what they do oh no even go to like one of those like niche coffee shops you know and like when they're all like barristers or spend ages making your perfect flat white and see what happens throw them a curveball Oh, I love that. I'm going to try that, actually. That'll be my, my chore when I come back from holiday.
1: <laughs> I think it might be wishful thinking, me calling it a pingo. I think it's a pingo.
0: Pingo. Ah, Pingo is good as well. I like that. Max, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to do this with me. This has been very helpful. and um, I think that uh, anybody who has any questions about this um, know exactly where to go in future. Thank you well, so thank much, Max.
1: Thank you very much for having me again.
0: No problem. Thanks. Bye. For more information on anything you've heard on the podcast or to appear on the show as a guest, please email me at familylawandlattes at gmail.com. There will be a new episode shortly. Until next time.